0: I try to encourage my own patients to remember that it's not a passive process, that it's an act, it's something you can engage with, and like all actions, you can do it well or you can do it badly. So it's not something that you can just sit back and wait. Usually, I mean, time can be a great healer, but you'll heal an awful lot better if you actually engage with the process and give it that respect.
1: Hi, and welcome to the All Too Well podcast. I'm your host, Erica Huss. I'm a wellness entrepreneur, a wellness expert, your wellness whisperer, with some tips, some resources, some great conversations, all in the name of making your journey towards better health just a little bit easier and a little less cringy. And today I am sharing uh, an interview that I had with Dr. Gavin Francis, who is a physician. He's a general physician with decades of training in the practice um, based out of Edinburgh. And he has written a book called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. And the book is really exactly what it sounds like. It is all about uh, this concept of convalescence and recovering from illness and injury and how we don't really treat it with the respect and the time and uh, just deference that it deserves. You might have heard me talking about this a little bit uh, more recently on a Tipsy Tuesday conversation where I was talking about how I was sick and uh, still trying to power through and get through my day and do all the things that I needed to do without really giving myself a time out. And uh, the reality is that's exactly what we're talking about here. So it was just kind of well-timed that I happened to have this conversation with Dr. Francis. It's really just about tuning into what the body needs and maybe having to listen just a little bit harder to understand what the body needs because we are really, really programmed to just kind of keep going and powering through, and oftentimes what we need is really an opportunity to rest, and whether that has to do with a little head cold or a broken bone all the way to very, very serious illness and injury, we really need to just take a moment to lean on our environment and our surrounding, the energies surrounding us, whether it is people or our homes or nature, and really kind of feed off of that in order to get back on our feet in a thoughtful and meaningful way. We also spent a little bit of time talking about just the doctor patient relationship, which I actually really found fascinating because I think in our modern age of medicine, uh, there's just, the dynamic has shifted and I think there are some doctors that have a bit of a God complex that we in turn kind of allow and not necessarily deservedly so. I think there are other doctors who have absolutely beautiful bedside manner that don't necessarily get the the accolade and the respect that they deserve. But the reality is that creating that dynamic through bedside manner, through engaging with a patient is such a huge part of the recovery process. And again, it's just not really something that we are conditioned to think about, but we do all have a sense of agency when it comes to developing that conversation and that dynamic with our practitioners. And I really encourage people to just have a listen to this episode and get a doctor's point of view on it, but also to really empower yourself with uh, you know, the confidence to ask the questions and ask a doctor to take a little bit of extra time and and really carve out the time to get their attention. It's not always easy, but it's always worth trying. Mm-hmm. This is obviously someone who has your entire well-being in their hands. And I think it's just, it's something that we don't spend enough time thinking about. I'm not being nearly as eloquent about it as Dr. Francis, so I will uh, let you listen from here. But uh, here is my chat with Dr. Gavin Francis. So officially welcome, Dr. Gavin Francis, who you are the author of a new book called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I'm very happy to to meet you and to, to have this conversation with you.
0: Well, thank you for having me on, Erica. It's, uh, it's delightful.
1: I will refrain from trying to mimic any level of a brogue that you have, which is very delightful and, and mine is not. But, you know, it's it's one of those things that's sort of musical and sometimes I can't help it. <laughs>
0: ah, okay. I'll sure. listen out for that.
1: Okay, perfect. So I'm excited to get into this book. I feel like it's probably a topic that people don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about, especially in our our culture uh, of kind of go, 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 and not really taking time to think about rest, recovery, convalescence, all of those things. But before that, can you share a little bit about your practice and and your own kind of history and, and how you arrived at this? And then we'll dive into um, what you're doing with the book.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm Gavin Francis. I am a primary care physician. I've been in medicine for almost 30 years. Um, I started out as an ER doctor, and then I gradually got more and more frustrated with not finding out what happened to any of my patients and moved into primary care, where I've been very happily for almost 20 years. And um, the origins of this book were in 2021, when the first couple of waves of COVID had passed through, and like all, all physicians, basically, but particularly primary care physicians, I'd A lot of my work had been taken up with dealing with COVID. And then through 2021 and into 2022, I found myself having conversations again and again with a lot of my patients about recovery and convalescence. Um, Not just from the kind of breathlessness that can sometimes hang around for quite a long time after COVID, but also from the fatigue that can hang around sometimes for weeks, sometimes even for months and months after COVID. And, and so there were certain principles of recovery that I took for granted, I realized, and that my patients didn't take for granted at all. And so I decided to put all these principles and all these thoughts and reflections and bits of advice and wisdom and experience into one short, accessible book. And um, so that people could be able to find them bit more easily. And, uh, you know, it was general principles of recovery that I was trying to bring out. So although the, the the trigger for the book really was thinking about the breathlessness and the fatigue of COVID, it became useful really to think about recovery even from mental health problems or recovery from from physical injuries as well, because a lot of the principles are actually the same.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting and I think certainly as I was saying, you know, in our kind of hustle culture, we don't really think about recovery. Like recovery is kind of a buzzword in itself, but we really associate it with athletes, right? Like we're becoming much more familiar with this concept of um, you know, ice baths and certain types of massage and cupping and all of these things that that athletes are doing to recover from injury and I think that we look at that or or from just overexertion. And and I think that we look at that culturally as uh kind of a badge of honor, right? But then when it comes to actually taking care of ourselves after an illness or after periods of overexertion as kind of normal mortals and not super athletes, I I, I totally see where you know you're coming from, which is that, that the idea is that it's it's not something that we allow ourselves. And if anything, I think there's a level of shame, right, associated with it, because it feels like a sense of laziness and and taking time that we don't really necessarily have to waste, even though, as you illustrate very nicely in this book, like it is anything but wasted time.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely not wasted. And and one of the principles that I was trying to get across in this book, one of the very important principles is this much neglected in our culture idea of self-compassion and self-care because, you know, many of my patients are so driven that illness for them becomes not just a difficulty associated with feeling unwell or feeling below par, but it becomes a real frustration because they're so driven to be achieving and doing so active when illness comes along and slows them down, they get very, very frustrated and that can be a barrier itself to recovering to the best of their ability. So I try in this book to encourage people not just to have a bit more self-compassion for themselves, to make time and space and respect for themselves and for the process of healing and also to kind of try their best to refrain from comparing. You know, one of the real... Problems with recovery is when you're constantly comparing yourself to someone else and say, "Oh, well, they're recovering so much faster than me." But comparisons are really rarely very helpful. So I try and encourage people away from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we we suffer from that in general as a culture, as a constant sense of comparison and, and competition. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess in that regard, this should be no, this would be no different. Um, yeah. I thought it was really interesting that you focus on the word convalescence which uh, you describe as in itself, it, the word itself means to grow in strength. And again, I think that this is an example of just kind of bad, bad PR, right, around this concept of recovery and convalescence um, because it is, it is a strengthening process, but we don't really give it the respect that it deserves, can you share a little bit um about this sort of history of convalescence? Because I don't feel, you know, I, I think that you've you've pointed out it it doesn't mm-hmm. it wasn't always this way, right? We used to have much more, you know, reverence for this process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um my own impression as a physician is that you know, modern medicine is amazing. You know, I wouldn't want to live without all the gifts of modern medicine. You know, through the 1950s and 1960s, we started, we're inventing antibiotics at a great speed, different psychiatric mental health drugs started to become very effective, steroids, inhalers, all these kinds of things that are utterly transformative for medicine and for helping my patients. But, you know, although we Some conditions can be really very, very well treated by modern medicine. Some conditions are really not well treated at all. And we began, I think, through the 70s and the 80s to look for these quick-fix miracle cures in places where there really aren't any. Now, before the 50s, we didn't really have that many effective drugs And so convalescence and time in a convalescent hospital and a slow approach to recovery, which took into account all those principles that were put into place in the old 19th century hospitals. So cleanliness, fresh air, good food, a view out over something green, you know, parkland. All those principles were helpful because when you didn't really have effective drugs, that's all you had. And, and, And they did help some people. Nowadays, we have to get our heads around the idea that, that actually they're still really helpful and that many, many conditions, there are no quick fix drugs and that we would do well to, to take some of that wisdom from earlier generations of medicine and try and infuse it back into our modern practice of medicine. Try and be a bit kinder to ourselves, try and give ourselves that space and cleanliness and fresh air and access to green and good diet, which really was all that they had at one point.
1: And it's, I mean, it's kind of the opposite of what happens now in our hospital system. I can't speak to Mm -hmm. the hospital system in, in, uh, in the UK, but we have, I mean, I think anybody would, who's ever spent time in a hospital can tell you with full confidence that it is the worst food they've ever had. And I'm not <laughs> talking about having a, you know, a, a delicacy and a gourmet experience. I'm talking about like getting, you know, cups of pudding and, and yeah. like white flour crackers and it's all sugar and salt and, and French high fries, carbohydrate. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And how anybody is ever expected to, to repair and and heal and I understand certainly in you know in in some environments there are hospital settings where you're not going to be able to have access to fresh air because of climate or whatever else. but I would be curious to know how many how many hospitals are out there that actually do have the facility to let people do exactly what you're suggesting, which is have fresh air and experience in nature, let alone you know a, a decent yeah. and respectable food program. Um and I understand that it all comes down to I mean it comes down to dollars, right? Like what well, this is mm-hmm. just not where we have prioritized our spending and even just spending time in a hospital is costs an insane amount of money that yeah. hopefully you can have recover, you know, covered by insurance. Again, that's where our system is really in America is very 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 broken.
0: Mm, yeah, but you know, even It's been shown that even if you have a window in your hospital that looks out over something green and growing and alive, that you need less painkillers, that you recover more quickly, it could well be that there's an economic benefit to this. Um, But as you say, there's just a shift in priorities has happened. And what I see in the UK, and I'd be interested to hear how it is in the US, but we still do have hospitals that have that old focus on beautiful architecture and uh, and and a beautiful green setting but they tend to be hospices for people Mm -hmm. who are terminally ill now Mm -hmm. so it's almost as if we still recognize the value and the beauty of these kind of healthcare settings but we now only restrict them to people approaching the end of life i would like us to broaden that access to think about them in all our hospital settings
1: yeah, that's a good point. I think that we think of the concept of somebody being in hospice as, uh, you know, we, we constantly use that phrase sort of, you know, to make them more comfortable, right? The, that phrase, I think, is is kind of masking uh, a much more unpleasant sentiment, which is that there's there's nothing left to do to rescue or hope for this this person's outcome besides just to to make them more comfortable. So we do that for people who are literally approaching the end of their lives, but we don't bother to do that in the same way for people who have a very good chance of actually bouncing back and and getting back up on their feet or or getting getting out of that that setting, Uh, which again, just feels like a sad thing. I haven't had a ton of experience in in hospitals, so I can't speak to what we're doing in the U.S. Uh, in you know that is that has a mind on on creating more serene and, and healthy environments. I mean, I live in New York City, so we've got some really shitty hospitals here. Uh, I, I I you know I would love to know about other parts of the country that have something that feels a little bit more uh, comforting and 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 you know healthy for the soul.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I guess out of a hospital setting, because we're talking now about a very specific category of people who, who need long-term care in that hospital setting. But out of a hospital setting, what do you feel like we can do differently to harness a little bit more of this, this sense mm-hmm. of respect for, for the recovery process?
0: Yeah, well, I, I try to encourage my own patients to remember that it's not a passive process. So it's an act. It's something you can engage with And like all actions, you can do it well or you can do it badly. So it's not something that you can just sit back and wait. Usually, I mean, time can be a great healer, but you'll heal an awful lot better if you actually engage with the process and give it that respect. And try to learn a new kind of language of the body of what you can manage and what you can't manage. You know, setting achievable goals is a really good way of doing it, you know, thinking Thinking modestly and not getting too frustrated if you can't achieve even those modest goals in the first instance, but trying to to slowly build and be methodical about it. And, and remember that illness isn't just biology, it's also social and psychology. A lot of it is about how you feel and how you're being trained by the society around you to, to, to feel. So I always want to encourage my patients to do things that make them feel good, you know, do what refreshes you, do what gives you energy and all those things in your life that make you feel bad and deplete you. You need Mm -hmm. to find ways somehow of doing less of those in order to give yourself the best shot of healing the best way you can with the most energy and the most reserves that you can.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's such good advice, but it also feels like it's so much easier said than done for people who are mm-hmm. of the mindset. And I think to large degree, we've been conditioned with this mindset of, you know, you get a sick day. And especially, again, in the U.S., you know, sick days, like they count them up. I, I don't know. How, how does it work in the U.K.? Are there generally, I mean, in the in general corporate culture, are, are you being allotted a certain number of sick days or is it more flexible than that?
0: Yeah, yeah, you do. You do. But, do you know, what's really interesting is that on average, the average European takes about twice as much sick leave as the average American.
1: And that's interesting. That
0: must yeah, that must be because of workplace culture, also wider societal culture. But clearly, there must be a lot of Americans forcing themselves to work when they just don't feel able, because I'm sure that there's not such differences in the constitutions of Americans and Europeans. So <laughs> yes, I think that's right. Yeah, so something has gone awry there, whereby there must be a lot of people going to work when they don't feel that they can actually comfortably manage it. That's one of my big roles as a primary care physician I think is to try and encourage my patients to take the sick leave that they can within their contracts. Obviously I don't have the power to renegotiate their work contracts, but you know with with letters to their boss or with certain kinds of social security letters I can do my best to try and give my patient the time that they need to recover within mm-hmm. the system that they're they're in. And that permission from me is as important as the patient giving themselves permission.
1: Right. But I think, again, where we have a real problem is giving ourselves permission to actually do this for ourselves, because I think there's a certain amount of fear that, you know, your job security is threatened if you are out of the office too much for reasons that are not necessarily, you know, treated the same as as if you have I, I mean, I, what what is the example? I don't know. Like somehow there is a, a, a sense of weakness and inferiority, I think, that is associated with being ill. So there's a threat of job security. And then again, I think this, this notion of, you know, this too much time off just breeds a sense of laziness and lack of motivation when in fact, to your point, and as some of the science illustrates, this actually incredibly restorative and can help with productivity, but it's really such a mindset shift that I think we need to adopt. And I mean, I understand also there are limitations here, right? There are plenty of, you know, corporate environments or not even corporate environments, but, you know, other types of job environments where you don't have the luxury of, of that much time off and people are dragging themselves to work again, more out of a sense of fear than anything else when they're, when they really would be best suited to stay home, um, so it's just an observation. I don't know. It's 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 kind of a sad fact of of how we operate and in, in our in our work culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think if you look at the statistics, Americans and Europeans are getting slowly better in terms of the the, the time that they can permit themselves to take off. You know, work contracts are getting gradually more generous, but it se- often seems to me that that process is too slow and I would like to to see it step up a bit. You know, as long ago as the 1930s, um, you know, the, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, he, had, he wrote a wonderful piece in The Atlantic where, you know, this was the 30s. He said that mechanization means that we do have the potential now for having leisure and time for everybody and still keeping our whole economy going, still keeping our economy efficient and generating um, money, but we have this kind of odd system whereby we have these sort of extraordinary inequalities where some people work incredibly, incredibly hard all the time and don't allow themselves any time off. And we've got other people in society who can't even find work, who are out of work. And, um, and I like that, you know, almost a century ago, Bertrand Russell was saying, with all the machines, we really could set up a more compassionate economy. It would be possible if we had the will to set up a bit more of a compassionate economy. And maybe we'll get there eventually.
1: I hope we do. I mean, I think that just that phrase, it feels like an oxymoron, you know, compassionate economy, but there is so much value to that concept. Um, it feels in in small efforts that we are getting there because, I mean, having a conversation with about something like that with you, it's not dissimilar to a, a conversation and a philosophy that I could, you know, find agreement among many, many peers, but somehow there is still a systemic block that that needs to be kind of hurdled um because it doesn't it doesn't feel that that's how we operate as a society it just feels that we all agree that that's how we should basically um so let's talk a little bit more about the tactics that you that you would recommend i mean you say to kind of set small and achievable goals um what is that what is that kind of thing what does that look like
0: um well i suppose it depends what You're struggling with. So, rather than, so for example, just to go back to the example of somebody recovering from COVID who's feeling very, very fatigued. So, a lot of my patients that are in that situation, they'll have good days and bad days. And a bad day, they can hardly get out of the house. And on a good day, they'll suddenly feel, oh, I'm getting better. I'm almost back to normal. And so, what they tend to end up doing on the good day is they immediately throw themselves back into their life as it was before. So they're like, "Oh great, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go shopping in the city center, and then I'm going to take my kids to the park, and then I'm going to ring up this friend and see her for a drink and and so on." And then of course they completely deplete themselves and they throw themselves backwards. And because they were only just feeling the edge of getting better, they still don't have those reserves back. And so what I'm always trying to encourage people is, you know, if you've got, if you're having a good day, then great, but, you know, still keep your activities modest, keep things modest and achievable, you know, only build very, very gently on what you're trying to accomplish each day, push gently at the edges of what you can do. And that's just as true if you're recovering from COVID, or if you're just say you're recovering from knee surgery, and you're, slowly getting strength back into your leg and you're still using a crutch you know don't overdo it just push gently at the edges of what's possible or just say you're recovering from a series of panic attacks and anxiety and you're feeling completely panicky and anxious when you go out of your apartment the same again you know just little gentle steps wait until it's completely comfortable for you to do something like say make it to the front door of the building onto the sidewalk before you then Start to push a bit more, further to yeah. to widen your horizon a little bit more.
1: We're so not good at that. <laughs> we're just yeah. not. We have no patience, and yeah. we. I mean, it's ironic that the word is patience, and we're talking about patience. Um, <laughs> but uh, we really don't do that well. And I think especially with COVID, it was so. My experience with it was, I had very early. I was kind of like the you know in the patient zero mm-hmm. group in April of 2020, and. I had very very few symptoms so my body sort of tricked me or I guess my brain tricked me really I had I did lose sense of smell and taste which was very disturbing and that was at the point where we actually didn't know that people were losing it you know for date like months and years beyond that. So it wasn't, it wasn't even that scary in that concept, but just the idea, I mean, I'm somebody who really finds such pleasure in food and drink and to not have any of those, you know, abilities, especially because I was otherwise feeling pretty good. I had like a little bit of a fever, but otherwise I felt a little tired, but I wasn't I I didn't feel the way that I know that a lot of people have really just been, you know, taken out by it. I am grateful and, and, you know, proud that I think I have a pretty strong immune system. But the point is that I was feeling, you know, at day 10, I was like, okay, I can't smell and taste anything, but I'm going to get on the exercise bike because in my brain, I feel like I just need to move. Like I cannot sit still anymore. And I got on the bike. I did a very slow ride for, I think, maybe 30 minutes. Three hours later, I spiked a fever that I hadn't had in 10 days and I was down for the count for another 24 hours. And that was very disturbing because I was like, what did I even do? How did I trigger this? I still don't really understand exactly what happened. Um, maybe you can <laughs> explain it. But the point is, I lost my patience. Everybody's saying you got to really give it two weeks and just be still. And I couldn't do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, the, the human immune system is still very mysterious and there's lots of aspects of it we don't really understand you know a lot of people have got the common experience for example of um holding off illness if they've got like a big deadline you know just say they're they're getting married or they've got some university exams or they've people have got this experience where they can manage to hold off and then as soon as that's out of the way they get ill they get sick and um we don't really know how the mind manages to do that holds off illness with the power of your immune system and similarly we don't really very well understand how when you stress yourself or overtire yourself that can open the way into illness um but it's true and and so i try and encourage people to listen to their body set those sort of small achievable goals be patient be self-compassionate and um that will put them in the best frame of mind and the best physical state to be able to recover to the best of their ability.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I, that happens to me all the time, or it used to actually. I don't feel like it happens as much anymore. Again, I think I've done so much work paying attention to my immune system and and how to most you know set it up for success as often as possible. That I feel very you know lucky and happy that I really I don't get sick very often. But it used to happen all the time where I would have a deadline. And as soon as it was done, as soon, I mean, within hours, I would come down with something terrible that would hang around for four or five days. But that is, I mean, that to me suggests, you know, just, just what you were saying that the, the, the mind and the, like how the, the mind sort of is able to regulate the immune system in a, you know, in, in that Example in a negative way, but then you also talk a little bit in the book about about the concept of a placebo, right? And beliefs, mm-hmm. and how yep. those things. And we know, you know, a lot about placebo, and we've seen evidence of it in so many in so many areas where the belief system, and you know, just believing that you're doing something right can actually help, you know, the healing mm. process. So it's interesting that that the mind can kind of control it in both ways. But I would like to know a little bit more about this this. Conversation about placebo and 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 the beliefs hmm. about illness and and healing.
0: Sure, I mean I, I have that discussion in the book in a part of the book which is called writing your own story. In the sense that when you feel you have power or autonomy over your own story, you can start to make really effective changes in your life, and you'll actually help you feel better too. And that's in no way to try and diminish or. Um, say that people can get over illness purely by the power of the mind. That is definitely not what I'm saying. But I'm also very conscious after all these years of practicing medicine that sometimes the mind can have a massive effect on our wellness and on our expectations. And that can be positive and negative. Sometimes our beliefs can make us sick. We believe we're going to get sick in a certain situation, then we almost certainly will be. And, And placebos are really good example of that you know where whereby we know that red placebos are good painkillers we know that blue 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 placebos are better as sedatives we know that capsules work better than than tablets we know that placebos have got a huge effect on our expectations and they consequently change our experience
1: wait can you i'm sorry to interrupt but can you say that part again about the red and the blue is that was that an example or is that a real that's real that's real. Wait, can you just say that again? That's fascinating.
0: Yeah. So we know that the placebos work for all sorts of reasons. And placebos can even work when you know that they're only sugar pills, which is a separate discussion. But just say for a moment, you don't know that it's a placebo. You think it's an active drug that you're taking. And if you give someone a red placebo and tell them it's a painkiller, it works better than if you give them a blue or a green placebo. So red seems to work better on the mind for convincing you that it's powerful for killing pain. What? Whereas, yeah. Whereas <laughs> if you if you reverse that and you give somebody a placebo and you tell them it's to relax them and make them feel calm, if you give them a red one and tell them that'll make you feel calm, it doesn't work as well as if you give them a blue or a green one.
1: So that blue, is insane. I'm sorry. That is... Yeah. I mean, that's, fascinating i'm thinking like oh tylenol that's red that's a red and white painkiller yeah exactly Holy shit. okay say more sorry I, I keep interrupting
0: <laughs> so and so that's really fascinating about the mind so the mind associates already different colors with different powers of these drugs which we know from the studies are not got any active agent but also just the the way that the the placebo looks so a capsule so a slippery capsule is more effective whatever you're using it for it's more effective than a a kind of chalky tablet so something about our mind really thinks that the capsules are powerful and and accepts that better and you know there's just there's a huge amount of medicine is about confidence and it's about explanation to the patient of what they might expect and it's about trying to tell a story that makes sense and hopefully a story that's going to tend towards a happy ending. You know, Freud had a brilliant line about this. He was talking about um, general physicians. You know, Freud trained as a, a, a general physician first and then he became a neurologist and then he started doing the psychotherapy. And he used to say, all physicians, therefore yourselves included, are continually practicing psychotherapy, even when you are not thinking that you're doing it. So, This idea that doctors in everything that they do and the way that they act is actually all a kind of therapy in that the way they project confidence or the way they project pessimism has a really powerful effect on the outcomes for the patient, Mm. which is itself really fascinating, a really big responsibility too, but, but really fascinating.
1: Yeah, that is. I wonder if there's any evidence of, because, you know, you hear very often people describing doctors um, in terms of their bedside manner. And people tend to most often, I think, want to work with doctors who have Bedside manner, and this is more specific to physicians. Obviously, I think I'm, I'm generalizing very grossly, but I think there is the notion that you know surgeons are are kind of all business and no bullshit because they don't have to have a bedside manner because most of their patients are under anesthesia the whole time. Um, I've happened to have met several surgeons who are lovely, and I I don't I, I don't agree with that across the board. But I wonder if there is evidence of. Of patients healing better and more rapidly when they're working with doctors that they feel are, just like you said, are instilling a sense of confidence, which I think comes from a bedside manner, as opposed to feeling like, you know, I think the worst feeling is that you're being a nuisance to a doctor, right? Because your health and your life is in their hands, your well being is in their hands. And to feel like, you know, you're asking too many questions or you're asking for things that are well within your rights as a, as a patient, but somehow seems to be a nuisance or an inconvenience like that. That's a terrible feeling because you feel helpless. Um, so I'd be curious to know if there's any, any research suggesting how patients respond to their doctor's manner.
0: No, there's definitely research that shows that, um, patients feel better in proportion to how they feel their physician is empathetic to their problems. So doctors that are perceived by the patient to be more empathetic, they get definitely get better outcomes in terms of how, not just how empowered their patient feels, but also how, how, how much better, even how much less pain their patients have, which is kind of fascinating in itself, isn't it? But it just shows how much even the experience of pain depends on context. Do you know, a pain that you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know whether it's going to get worse or better, you don't know whether you're going to be able to get it cured, that is a pain that is going to trouble you a lot more than a pain for which you've had a good explanation that by somebody who's been patient and who's been kind about it, who's explained to you where it comes from and what's going to happen with this pain. Immediately, That becomes more tolerable, doesn't it? That pain becomes something that you feel like you can handle Mm. if if that's the context in which it's presented to you. And which yeah, it's like it's another theme of this book. I wrote one of the chapters of this book I called The Ideal Doctor, because I wanted to explore these ideas that that sometimes a patient, the kind of doctor you need is that more distant more paternalistic, stereotypical, surgical approach. And some patients like that. They just, I've had patients where I've tried to give be a gentle and give an explanation, and they've essentially turned around to me and said, look, you decide. You tell me. You're the doctor. <laughs> right, right. Yes. You're the one who went to medical school. And then and I've had other patients who really want that much more gentle, collaborative, friendly, compassionate approach. And and you know, I think one of the real um, skills of being a good physician and a good clinician is gauging what kind of doctor you need to be for that patient to help them. So maybe they need you to be a bit more objective, scientific, paternalistic. Maybe they need you to be a bit more soft and gentle and collaborative with an arm around the shoulder. And and I think really, really skillful physicians are are good at switching their attitude and their manner depending on who they're with.
1: Yeah. You got to read the room. You have to know. But I think that um, not everybody has that skill, even as a human, let alone in in a professional setting. And yeah, you could be the most amazing, talented, skillful doctor. But if you make somebody feel unsafe in whatever way in your presence, then yeah. I mean, it sounds like statistically you're going to have a much lower track record of success um yeah yeah i
0: mean years ago i had a mentor that told me something i mean it's it was a really high standard that that they set but he said if if the patient doesn't leave your office feeling better then you're in the wrong job and i thought okay you know sometimes i'm going to give people really bad news sometimes i'm going to tell them really difficult things that are really difficult to hear but his point was that even when you're breaking bad news and telling people things that are difficult to hear. You should be doing it in a context and in a way which reassures them that they're still being cared for and that they're within a, um, they've got a framework by which they can understand what is happening to them and what will happen to them over the subsequent treatment, which mm. I think there's yeah. some real wisdom there.
1: I yeah. agree. That's really beautiful advice. And we wish that more would take it. I mean, I know it's such a, it's such a difficult landscape now being in in the the in the healthcare profession because doctors and nurses in particular they're just i mean you know just up there with teachers like they're i guess different than teachers teachers are definitely not compensated for their you know for what mm-hmm. they put out into the world but even now you know it used to be that you were a doctor and you were set for life and so were your grandkids and that's just not the case anymore because mm-hmm. we don't treat it with the same level of respect in terms of you know financial reward and and earnings as we once did um, it's become a much more difficult uh you know road to navigate um, as a profession mm-hmm. and i just i don't know i feel like that just creates such a such a downward spiral cycle because it creates less uh, you know it seems to create less incentive and less motivation to really put your full self into that you know, into Mm -hmm. that work. And just the way that the system is set up and, you know, administratively doctors are given 10 minutes to sit with a patient and, you know, get their entire whole story, which I think we all agree at this point, you have to have the whole story. You can't just Mm -hmm. look at someone's ear and understand what's wrong with their ear without also understanding what's wrong with their ankles. And again, Mm -hmm. I'm oversimplifying it. Um, I know it's much more nuanced than that, but and I know we're kind of getting off the topic of recovery and just kind of onto yeah. the the sad trials and tribulations of you know the U.S. healthcare system, but but it feels like it needs it needs you know reinforcing because you know to your point, like there is such a benefit for everybody, right? You you're not a doctor so that you can you know be around sick people. You're, you're a doctor so that you can help people heal and.
0: Mm-hmm. If- yeah, if you can find ways more effective ways of making people feel better, and sure, I mean it's the same in the UK in terms of the pressures, the financial pressures often are such that appointment times get stripped back and stripped back to to sort of ten minute appointments. Yeah. What I do have in the UK setting, which is good, is although my appointment times are very brief, it can often be possible to build a relationship over time with somebody and see the same patient again really fairly quickly again afterwards. So although the appointment times themselves are, are very restricted, it's still possible to build a relationship over months and years of repeated visits in a way that is quite hard, I think, in some parts of the US healthcare system and certainly even in some parts of the UK hospital system.
1: Yeah, well, and I also, I mean, I think that especially comes with the territory of being a you know general practitioner physician. Mm-hmm. Um, and we... In our culture, I think, have now started to place so much more focus on specialists. Um, people don't necessarily really develop a rapport with a, a physician in the same way. Be- I think many people treat mm-hmm. their physicians here as like, oh, I have to go to this person so that they can refer me to the specialist, but mm-hmm. I don't otherwise really need to have a relationship with this person. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes you realize a little too late that you actually do need to have that relationship because you really never know what's coming up and how beneficial it can be to have somebody that really does have your full history and understand everything that is going into you know whatever the next mm-hmm. step may be if you end up needing a specialist for something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really important to trust, to be able to trust your physicians. And that's uh, something I see with occasionally I'll meet a patient who will go around Various other um, other specialists, you know, they'll go and see uh, uh, a guy about a potential surgical procedure. But then they'll still come back to me as the primary care physician and ask what I think they should do because they know I'm not going to get paid any differently depending on what course I advise. Whereas they have this sort of worry that with some surgeons, they may be getting pushed down a line of getting some procedure that they may not need. There's some sort of financial motivation there which is a really sad thing I think that when when a patient suspects that because I genuinely believe that most people go into medicine because they want to help patients they don't want to be doing the right thing by those patients they don't want to be just using it as an opportunity to profit
1: yeah I would hope so there's there's definitely other ways to, to make mm. money these days Ugh. Well, it's I mean, it's just the whole concept I think that you're that you're illustrating here is really it's interesting and it is worthy of of more time than we than we give it. Um, I was thinking back when I was reading. I was thinking back to, again, I feel like I've been very fortunate. I've had very little, you know, um significant very little in the way of significant medical concerns and issues in my life except for one time that was just a complete fluke that I ended up in the hospital for a week. Um, I had an ulcer that went undiagnosed and then it exploded. And that was a big surprise mm. for everybody. Um, it was terrible. It was terrible. And it's so weird though, because I mean, it was it was certainly the most physical discomfort I've ever experienced when I I came out of you know came out of emergency surgery and I had this huge you know incision all the way down my my abdomen and everything mm-hmm. was stitched together and I had tubes and it was more medical stuff than I had ever had done to me and you know it was attached to the pain meds and all of that and I was in the hospital for a week and even in light of all of that, you know, incredible just physical trauma that I experienced in those 24 hours of like it happening and having the surgery, I have these very distinct memories of feeling so like safe and so, I mean, calm is not the right word because it wasn't about mm-hmm. feeling calm. It w- But like the hospital, the time I spent in the hospital actually did feel very, very healing and it felt very... Mm-hmm. um. I don't know, there was something that was very positive about it. And you would think, especially with that type of a trauma, you know, you can't stand up, you can't sit, you can't laugh, you can't cough, you can't really do anything that feels like you, you feel normal, taking two days just to actually be able to stand up and, and tar- start to take a step or two. But there's something about that time that I always go back to in my head where I just felt very... Safe and protected and kind of cozy. I don't know. It's so strange mm. to have that association with something that was so physically traumatic. But I think it it really I, I don't know that reading everything that you were writing about this art of of convalescing and recovery and how we don't really give it respect, like that just unlocked all of that for me. I was like, i got, I really mm. did feel like i I had no choice but to respect the process because I was physically unable to move any faster than I was. But, I don't know. It, it, I guess it was like the positive takeaway of all of that terrible experience. And it, it really was meaningful. So mm. I don't know. It's yeah. Just I mean, it's something
0: about illness, doesn't it? It kind of strips away everything and puts you back to the basics. Of yes. What are your priorities? What What do you want to prioritize in your life when you're really ill? And sometimes you're even, you know, people are going through situations where there it could even be life or death. And you come through that and you think, wow, like I went through that terrible ordeal. Now I'm through that ordeal. How do I want to live my life differently in mm-hmm. the light of that? And some some of my patients do manage to to gather that kind of um silver lining from the terrible cloud of illness, as I say. Some some manage to take something positive out of it.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's what it what it is. It's just that it really does force you to Kind of just take time out and think about the things that are actually truly important, and it sounds very cliche, but it's true. Like when you're mm-hmm. when you're in a hospital bed and and you know you're you're stitched and tubed and taped and and all of these things, like there are a lot of things that just seem to matter a lot less. And I think mm-hmm. just even that shift in mindset can then have a ripple, a, a positive ripple effect on your overall sense of well being. I mean, I think that's the best way that I can describe. You know, that what I was. just saying this my own personal experience that there's something about it that just feels very comforting to me in the strangest way so anyway um well this has been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you and is there anything you feel like you want to share that you haven't really touched on um
0: no no i was just while you were talking there about the occasional the very occasional advantages that we can pull out of 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 illness you know the the sort of um, jewels that we might be able to pull out of the wreckage of it. It made me think of a story that I tell in this book that I wondered if your listeners might appreciate, which is uh, these two patients that I once had who both of whom suffered cardiac arrests, both of whom had defibrillators attached to them and were were, were shocked back into life, and both of whom subsequently made a full recovery. And it was really extraordinary for me that I'd had these two patients, both men, both had had the same experience, both had essentially almost died and then lived again. And they had really completely different reactions to that experience. Mm. One of them became really panicky and depressed after it because the fragility of life had been revealed to him and he found it really quite hurtful. Mm. But the other one took it as a great gift. and, And it was extraordinary, the transformation that came over his life is he realized that it was almost like he'd been given bonus time or extra time and he was going mm-hmm. to enjoy it and wring from it, from life, everything that he could. And it was really lovely to see that he was able to take from such a traumatic experience, such a powerful message about the importance of enjoying his life and being with his family and and, and doing all the things that, that he loved. And, and wouldn't it be great if more of us could take that from, from our experiences?
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that that reading that story definitely struck a note with me as well. And I think many, many, many people can identify with that that notion. Um, so I think a lot of people will have a really positive takeaway from from reading more about that. Mm. Good. Well, Noah, thank you for having me along. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, and we will um, make sure that everybody has links to where they can find the book. Uh, The book is called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence, and um, Dr. Gavin Francis, it's been such a pleasure to, to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. Thanks for listening to All Too Well, guys, and as always, I am accepting stars, reviews, all of the above. They don't cost you anything, and they mean a lot to me. So, if you do have time, head on over to Apple Podcasts and throw me a few stars, and uh, you know, just do a good turn. Thanks.